0: This podcast on pivotal issues, trends, and leadership in higher education. I'm Doug Spry, and today's guest is Eric Kaufman, professor of politics at Birkbeck College, University of London. He's the author of several books, including White Shift, Immigration, Populism, and the Future of White Majorities, as well as Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth?, The Rise and Fall of Anglo-America, and The Orange Order. He's co-editor, among others, of the journal Political Demography, and editor of Rethinking Ethnicity, Majority Groups, and Dominant Minorities. He has also written for the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Times of London, Newsweek, and many, many more. My acta colleague, Steve McGuire, recently sat down with Eric Kaufman and recorded this episode.
1: Eric, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Great to be here, Steve.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, it's really great to have you. So I'd like to talk to you today about some of the work you've been doing on the uh, future of free expression and intellectual diversity on college and university campuses, as well as some of the things that you think we might be able to do to embrace and protect those things. But first, let me just start by asking for your assessment of where we are today in terms of uh, free expression and intellectual diversity on campus. I'll say, you know, for my own part, You know, I've always thought, you know, the university leans uh liberal, uh, leans left, uh, you know, we can sort of debate the the terminology, you know, there's obviously differences there, uh, but generally leaned left of, of center, but you could, you know, you could function fine, uh, more or less uh, as a conservative, you know, there's gonna be fewer conservatives around, it might be a little harder to get in if you're, say, looking for an academic job or something like that. But, you know, nevertheless, uh, there were, you know, possibilities and openings and that sort of thing. And uh, it seems to have gotten quite a bit worse. And from my you know, perspective in, in my experience, uh, say since about the time that Donald Trump was elected, maybe a little bit before that, but certainly especially after that. But you know, you look at data; you don't just look at anecdotes and, and personal experiences. So, uh, you know, from that perspective, sort of, what's your assessment of of where we are? today, uh, maybe relative to, you know, where we've been over the last several decades?
2: Well, I think that what we've seen, and there's, there's some interesting data that you mentioned um, from Dennis Chong, uh, Jack Citrin, Morris Levy out of uh, California Political Scientists, who you, we can track some of this data back to the 70s, or we can replicate questions that were asked in earlier periods. And their conclusion from the data really is that there's been a shift from people saying that values are relative to, to saying there's absolute right or wrong amongst young university educated people. You know, it used to be that the highly educated were more likely to say, you know, there are different ways of being right or wrong. They were more morally relativist than the population in general, and they're now more m- morally absolutist. So that moral absolutism is the real trend, I think, of the emerging Zoomer generation. And I think that's really why we're seeing a lot of the things that we're seeing on campus. And and then, of course, we can then go and look at the, the, the data from places like fire where, you know, if you take questions like should somebody who thinks that BLM is a is a hate group or who thinks that you should never be able to get an abortion or transgenderism is a mental disorder, you know, be allowed, be permitted to speak on campus. It's sort of between two thirds and 85% opposition now pretty consistently to, to that. So that's just kind of giving you a sense of And then there have been other questions, you know, should a a professor who who offends students be reported to the administration and 70% of students? Now, of course, there's always a big ideological split. The conservative students are much more pro-free speech than those who are on the left or, or liberal. But still, yeah, these numbers are really quite alarming. And I think they reflect that new outlook of this more morally absolutist generation.
1: Okay, good. Yeah. So that's what I was going to ask. Like, Where do you see this coming from? Is this coming from uh, particular uh, ideological views? Are there other social uh, forces at work here? So what what is leading to this greater sense of uh, moral absolutism?
2: Well, I I think there's kind of two ingredients to it. Uh, You know, Gene Twenge, and uh, if that's how you pronounce it, and and, uh, Jonathan Haidt and others would tend to put a lot of emphasis on social media leading to more anxiety and depression. Leading to more of a victimhood mentality which shapes people's outlook. So speech has they they are primarily focused on the harms of speech rather than on freedom. Now I think that's part of the cocktail, but I put more emphasis on sort of longer-running ideological developments. So I would argue, for example, that Uh, political correctness and speech codes, which begin, well, the first speech codes, Stanford, 1974. uh, But certainly by the late 80s, we're getting a lot of these speech codes. And that's reflecting a kind of philosophy that says that emotional safety and emotional harm claims on behalf of uh, totemic minority groups are more important than freedom of expression. And so I think this is actually an ideology, which actually goes back to the late 60s, too, by the way, you could see these claims being pressed in, even in the late 60s. And it sort of metastasizes and then you get more acolytes who then have more students who hire their own. And so I think there's a certain snowballing effect and that influences eventually avant-garde culture, influences youth culture. So I think it's a combination actually of the of these longer-term ideological developments with this fragility, which is linked perhaps to social media perhaps to some of the kind of narcissism that's that's pointed out in the psychology literature. But but through that cocktail, I think that's what breeds this outlook. I should say, however, that if, if we were to take a question like, you know, should James Damore have been fired by Google or, or any question that would tap into that cancel culture orientation, where you are on a five-point left-to-right or liberal-to-conservative scale is the strongest predictor of where you're going to land on that question, followed by age and so actually the ideology is a bit more important than the age and so i don't think this is principally just about generational dynamics i think it's very ideological as well
1: interesting now you you mentioned some of those questions in the in the fire survey about you know should so and so be allowed you know should a guest speaker be allowed to say x on, on campus and i remember looking at, at some of those questions and you'll know the data better than me, but some of them, they were asking about statements that most people would characterize as uh, progressive or, or left-wing. Uh, and then there would be others that would you know be more sort of right-wing statements. And so you say like, oh, if somebody wanted to argue that BLM is a hate group, you, know, you see sort of off the charts, no, they shouldn't be allowed to say that. And if you break it down by uh, left and right, people on the left really say uh, you shouldn't be able to say that. Now, if you look at a question like, should somebody be allowed to come on campus and argue that the police should be defunded, or I forget exactly which the question is that they ask, maybe abolish the police or something like that, and you break it down left and right, you'll see that the numbers among conservatives who say that person shouldn't be allowed to say that will go up a bit. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's maybe still not quite as high as uh, the progressives on the issues that they don't like, but nevertheless, that does seem to suggest that you know, while it may be ideological, as you're suggesting, that it also maybe is some of these other factors where you see that even conservative students, in this case, when asked about views that they don't like, will be some of them will say, "Yeah, you shouldn't be able to say that on campus."
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right. So if it's a view that you're opposed to, you're going to be more likely to cancel. And you're correct that it goes both ways however there is an asymmetry right i mean this is something that seems to be showing up in the data more and more particularly since 2016 in elite spaces is this kind of asymmetry a similar question would you know would you date a supporter uh from the other party right and you know the you'll get a certain proportion of conservatives who wouldn't date a liberal or a democrat or or a uh, you know a sanders supporter but it's it's typically about half or less as large as the share of wooden data, Trump supporter, a wooden data Republican, et cetera. So I do think there, and similarly studies of the faculty, you know, the recent FIRE study, which I was kind of involved in, you can see that, you know, attitudes towards right-wing voters amongst left-wing academics are far more negative than the reverse. And so what I would say is, yes, it's going both ways, but I think it's much stronger left to right than right to left.
1: Right, right. So yeah, you mentioned the, uh, the fire faculty survey and I know you did some, some work, uh, analyzing that. And, you know, one thing that people wonder about too in terms of, uh, censoriousness on campus and that sort of thing is where is this primarily coming from in terms of the groups on campus right like some people will say the real problem are the administrators and if the faculty could just reassert their autonomy and control over governance of the universities uh, this would solve the problem uh, other people will look at that and say you know have you seen the you know the political <laughs> breakdown of faculty have you seen some of these surveys but then you know in your analysis you note too that well the faculty don't seem to be nearly as bad as uh, some of the students do uh, when when fire and other groups survey the students so you know what's what's your view on that as far as you're able to tell given the various surveys that are out you know between administrators faculty staff students uh you know who are the real culprits here in terms Uh of uh violating free expression on campus or you know not being willing to embrace intellectual diversity
2: yeah i mean it's actually quite complex so for example if we just take academics I mean, they are more tolerant than students in terms of not wanting to cancel people and supporting freedom of expression. But it depends a lot on the question, right? So, so if you phrase, if you take a question like, "What is more important? You know, do you favor political correctness because it protects minority groups, or do you oppose it because uh, it restricts free speech?" A Sample of academics in Britain, it was about, you know, on, in, I mean, in the social sciences, it was about seventy-five percent support for political correctness because it protects minorities versus 20% opposing it because it, it restricts free speech. And in the general public, it was slight majority... F- against political correctness. Um, so that's one example of where, you know, the academics are way off towards the sort of, you might think of it as an anti-free speech position. But then you'll take another question such as, you know, somebody does research showing that intact families are better than single parent families, or the British Empire was a great thing, did more good than harm, or, you know, even something like more minorities and, and women in an organization will reduce the p- performance of the organization. Should this person be Uh, essentially fired or encouraged to leave their job, you get relatively low support, maybe 10, 20% at the most uh, amongst academics. So on other questions, they're very, you know, pro-free speech, but on some questions, they're anti. The ones where they tend to be, I would argue, restrictive on free speech tend to be these questions that Sound like a very good thing from a social justice point of view. So, for example, do you support diversity statements or do you think that they're a political litmus test? Elite university social scientists, it's two to one in favor of diversity statements. Or do you support essentially race and gender quotas mandatory on reading lists? You know, 45 to 33, something like that, support. Um, you then say, well, what if somebody doesn't want to abide by these things? You know, they don't want to decolonize their reading list. What should happen to them? They won't say the person should be fired, but a majority will say there should at least be social pressure on them. They should be made to take diversity training. Things which are actually kind of quite authoritarian, uh, but they're not thinking of that when they read the question. And so I think that a lot of them would support policies that carry authoritarian, illiberal implications, even if they wouldn't support cancel culture
1: directly. Okay. And that probably in some ways goes back to the moral absolutism that you were talking about earlier, that there are certain views or uh, moral or political commitments that they have adopted and strongly believe in. And and those just maybe outrank freedom of expression uh, or academic freedom in some way in their minds when they're asked about those two things uh, as being in competition with one another.
2: Yeah, I think that that academics... Are more strongly pro-academic freedom than the students or the public, and they're also more strongly pro-social justice than the public. So it it comes down to how these two things rank order in in a given question and what's made salient uh, as to where they're going to fall down on these questions. So I think actually both are important to them. And, And in fact, on a lot of these questions, like even on a question such as, should a professor be forced out for for, for researching and finding that more women and and minorities in an organization worsens performance, most of them will come in on a don't know, unsure, rather than saying, no, we should stand up for this person's free speech. So a lot of them will come in in the middle. They won't say cancel the person, but they also won't say I would oppose cancellation. They're in that middle band. And, And I think that's sort of saying, telling us that there's this very strong cross pressuring of values going on amongst a lot of faculty
1: interesting so eric you live and work in the uk uh you're you're canadian uh, i also uh grew up in canada uh okay. I you were, yeah you were in vancouver uh i grew up just outside of edmonton um, okay so not that that far away but uh, I think uh, we see we're seeing similar trends in the UK and in Canada uh, compared to what we, we see in the United States. But uh, you follow all three countries uh, much more closely than I do. Is, is that your assessment or, or, or some? Or is any one of these countries maybe doing a little bit better as far as uh, free speech or, or academic freedom is concerned? Or are they all kind of going down the same the same path
2: <laughs> going going down the same hole? Yeah, um, <laughs> No, I think it's very similar. I think Britain is maybe slightly behind the curve in a good way, but only slightly. So I think that the rate of, you know, the rate of no platforming, there's certainly the the, the extent there isn't as much bureaucratic administration to deeper bureaucracies to push DEI. I mean, it's happening. It is definitely happening, but it seems a little bit less aggressive than in, in the U S case. Canada seems to me to be pretty identical to the United States in terms of the level of penetration of this. The, the other thing I'd say is, I mean, Canada I think is in the worst position because there's no counterbalancing uh, there's no counterweight to this. Whereas in the UK, the government has been conservative for 13 years They've done nothing for all but two of those years, but in the last few, sorry, in the last three years, they have actually been making the right noises and also legislating in a way that I think has been very positive for at least the free speech side of the equation, not doing anything really on the viewpoint diversity side, but certainly protecting academic freedom. I think that's much more robust now, especially with the new bill that has just become a law very recently, uh, which I'm happy to talk about. Whereas my impression in Canada... Certainly is that despite bills, which are very abstract at universities to have these University of Chicago style principle statements, it hasn't translated into anything on the ground. It's, it's still pretty censorious. Um, and then in the U.S., I think there are a lot of different things happening, depending on whether you're in a red or a blue state. Um, Also, some very encouraging civil society organizations like yourselves, like FIRE, and and so on that I think are doing excellent work.
1: Interesting. (laughs) Um, It is interesting that this does seem to be happening across these various countries, you know, at least somewhat at at the same rate or, you know, at the same time. So I want to talk to you. About some of the stuff that you've written recently about the future of free expression, which you know I, I'm in the business of trying to protect free expression, promote it, promote intellectual diversity, and uh, you know I I read a recent piece by you that essentially says you know the cause has already been lost at least for the next generation. That's obviously uh, quite disconcerting, but but very interesting. And again, you know you point to uh, significant data, and if I understand correctly, uh, your suggestion is that the next generation of professors are already sort sort of ideologically demographically set, uh, that they have fairly censorious views uh, relative to even this current uh, generation that's sort of on its way to retirement, and that you see at least in the in the short term, uh, you know, that the professoriate uh, in particular, I think, uh, will become less friendly towards free expression and intellectual diversity. Is that right?
2: Yeah, that is right. And, and just, you know, based on the surveys of a number of different methodologies that I've used across Britain, Canada, and the US, we see the same pattern that young academics are about twice as censorious, so twice as likely to endorse a firing campaign as older professors, and that's controlling for a whole host of factors, including gender, including uh, ideology. So old leftists are just, they're a lot more tolerant than young leftists. That's a pattern, by the way, we see in the general population as well. So the academics are just mirroring patterns that we see outside academia. It's nothing, there's nothing really that special about academia. It's just that the patterns that we're seeing are the, the number one variable is where you are ideologically. The second thing is your age. And there's also a bit of an interaction between uh, being young and being left wing. So the young left is especially censorious uh, compared to the old left. And that's who's coming into academia. I mean, the, you know, academia, even older academics are overwhelmingly on the left. So it's not as though the young academics are more left-wing than the old, but a, a young leftist is just more illiberal than an old leftist. So I just think even though we can have editorials from Harper's and the New York Times and all of this encouraging stuff, and yes, that some universities are you know undertaking the right policies but uh if you look at the generational turnover the cohort effects are just you know in a way pushing towards a structurally more intolerant uh environment so i just don't see how these things get better even though i do think yes the last year has been a lot more encouraging than than 2020 to 2021 but (laughs) <laughs> I mean, um i'm just not sure how this is going to last when you've got these new cohorts which are going to become the median voter the median academic
1: yeah so there's this uh, old saying that you know if you're you're not a liberal when you're young you have no heart if you're you're not a conservative when you're old you you have no brain and um, you know i think some people might hope that you know as the current generation gets a bit older you know they start doing things like having families buying a house uh you know that sort of thing that you know some more some moderation at least if not conservatism might start to develop but in your article you said we sh- we shouldn't expect that that they're they're ba- they're basically set so does that I mean you, you don't think that through um you know, reason and persuasion, or even just the natural effects of getting older, that we have a hope of, uh, you know, convincing this upcoming generation that you know they should embrace academic freedom and free speech as uh, paramount uh, values for their academic institutions.
2: Well, I, I don't want to say no hope, but you know, I've done tried some experiments too, where we get people to read a paragraph. That's, pro free speech and then one that's pro emotional safety and you can see that people in high school the 18 to 20s plus people in, in at the undergraduate level at least in the UK you can shift their views 10 to 15 points either direction. So there's there's malleability, I'd say, up until more so in high school than in university, but even in, maybe amongst undergraduates, but not amongst anyone who's post-grad. So I think people who are in the system, younger academics, graduate students, I don't think their views can be shifted. Um, and also, I think... Getting a home, settling down, I don't think those things actually will affect it either, because if those were important, we would expect to see, let's say, under 30s or under 40s who have a home, who have a, a higher income, who are married, etc., to be significantly less illiberal on these things than those who aren't. And, and none of the data supports that. So I just think this is much more or it's pretty orthogonal to the material Markers and that. If you take the uh, Citron and Chong paper, which really goes back, looks at time series going back to the 70s, you can see that you know, in the even in 2000, questions about free speech. Eight, 18 year olds in 2000 were just a lot more tolerant uh, than 18 year olds in 2016, for example. So it's not the age. It's it's the set of beliefs that are imprinted in the generation as they come to political maturity and they carry those. I'm convinced they're going to carry those with them as they enter the workforce. That's kind of behind some of the employee activism that you've seen in corporations, for example, uh, even in law firms, unwillingness to take certain cases. I think this is just a manifestation of these generational changes. um, And I just don't see those views. I think it's going to take something else to change those views, some kind of a shock. But if, barring that, I don't think achieving markers of adulthood is going to do it.
1: Now you mentioned, yeah, that's right. You're seeing this uh, filter into various other uh, professions and areas uh, of activity in society. Um, you mentioned that in some ways, academia is not that different than, than other parts of society. Uh, but I did, I, I thought that faculty, relative to say like American public opinion tended to lean towards the left. Uh, is is that correct? Uh, so you're seeing this filter into these various parts of uh, American society, but at, at the same time, there is a sort of disconnect between sort of overall statistically how academics view the world versus how the broader American public views the world. Yeah.
2: I mean, What I mean by, you know, I think if you take a left wing, someone who identifies as far left who is not an academic and someone who identifies as far left who is an academic, the far left academic is actually more liberal, I mean, in the classical liberal sense on speech issues than the far left non-academic. But of course, in the general population, you know, it's more like 50-50 as opposed to you know certainly in the social sciences and humanities academics are something like you know 12 13 14 to 1 left to right so clearly because they're so much more left wing they're going to be a lot less liberal on speech issues but apples for apples you know like left wing academic left wing non academic the left wing non academic is probably more intolerant than the left wing academic
1: okay and um, you know i think a traditional sort of sense of the the political breakdown of the campus or sort of how some of these Things take place in terms of, say, cancellations of guest speakers, uh, you know, even in recent years is, uh, you know, you would look at the, the self-reported political breakdown of faculty and you'd see that, you know, I don't know, there'd be 10 or 15% who would identify as left or far left. And then you'd have a big chunk still, uh, that identified as liberal. And, and I, I think if you go back several decades, you would find that, you know an overwhelming majority of faculty would probably identify as liberal in a more sort of okay left leaning but more sort of moderate centrist ish sense and then you'd have some people on the far left um like you know i don't know actual socialists or something right. like that marxist professors and then you'd have some people on on the right as well who would identify as conservative but you know, fast forward to say the last five, 10 years, you see these uh cancellations of guest speakers or or faculty members or what have you. And the dynamics seem to be that there'd be a very vocal minority of students and faculty who are, you know, signing petitions, uh, you know, in their administrators' ears, trying to push to get something done. And then there would be still this large uh group of faculty in the middle who sort of lean left, uh are sort of progressive, but they're not really. Left wing activists like this other minority group. And so the the dynamic at play here really is that uh, there's a vocal minority that wants to get something done. And then there's a large group that might be somewhat sympathetic to some of those views, but aren't really activists in that sense, but they don't really stand up for somebody either. They don't stand up for free expression. Um so is that still the case do you s- still see that as being the case in the future or or do you think that more and more even this this middle group is just starting to, you know, if not evaporate that they're shrinking. And so it's it's going to be more of a kind of polarized uh faculty with uh, more people on the left and not so much this this moderate center that, you know, maybe people thought was persuadable uh in the past.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that I would sort of see it more as um, a shift to the left amongst the professoriate. You know, if we take faculty as a whole from the HERI surveys, it's gone from about one and a half to one left to right in the mid-60s to about six to one uh left to right and 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 or five to six to one and the same things happened in Britain where we've got data as well. Um the the center and right have both declined and the left has increased. So it has definitely shifted to the left. And when you shift to the left I think John Ellis in his book The Breakdown of Higher Education, you know, when you get more of a monoculture, the incentives change. So the incentives go towards Exemplifying the values of the entire community, which means fundamentalism, uh, and Cass Sunstein in his book on conformity has talked about this as well. on uh, judicial panels, so yeah, the incentives are are going to change the more monocultural you get. I think that's a big, you know, a part of the story. Now, if you look at public opinion on these cancel culture issues amongst the professoriate, it is yes, there's that ten percent who are really all in on on canceling, maybe twenty percent if we push it, depending on the question, but then you 've got that middle band of cross pressured between their liberal values and their sort of social justice values, and that 's a sort of forty to fifty percent band um, now, if those people were four square in favor of free speech, I think we would have a different dynamic, uh, but because of their progressive sympathies, I think they are. They see some of the positives in these social justice movements, and they're willing to kind of say, well, their heart's in the right place. So they're actually genuinely conflicted. I don't think it's the case that they hate these values, but they're too scared. I mean, yes, that's part of it. But I think the bigger part of it is that they are conflicted. And so I think that's an important part of what's occurring um, and if they were really genuinely against it, then I I think ultimately sp- enough of them would speak up, and it would go. So I mean, looking ahead, I don't see this internal resistance mm-hmm. growing, despite the Stephen Pinker, Harvard academic freedom people, and the Academic Freedom Alliance, and all these very useful support networks. I, I just don't think people are going to speak up, and part of that is just the, the everyday peer pressure: who you're, who's going to sit with you in the lunch hall, who's going to hire you, promote you, publish you. And it's such a collegial profession that you have to sort of stay on the good side of where the center of public
1: opinion is. Right. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. Uh, you know, having been an academic for for years myself, it's it is in a lot of ways you know, just like any other profession where you want to, you know, you go to the office and there's a birthday cake because it's somebody's birthday and right. you want to right. be able to go in there and be able to to stand next to a couple of people and have a conversation uh, while eating a piece of cake. And, and, you know, that's hard to do if, uh, you know, every day you're, you're in their faces explaining why you think, you know, their ideas are <laughs> terrible and you know that sort of thing. Um, you know.
2: <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah. And that, that was Sunstein's point that the more social, an organization is, the less dissent, the more conformity. And so because it's a collegial profession, you're just going to get more conformity. Then let's say in journalism, where maybe people are off writing their own thing, and and there's less of that.
1: Right, right. Yeah, maybe there's interesting ways to sort of rethink what the model ought to be if you want your, uh, you know, your scholars to be more like Socrates, where they're willing to upset people unto death, you know, if it comes to that. One last thing I want to ask you about before moving into this debate about how we approach these issues um, is in terms of the the sort of liberal or left-leaning nature of the professoriate, uh, if you have any further thoughts on, on why that is, and I'm thinking in particular, you know, some people argue that you know education makes people more liberal or it makes them uh, more more progressive. I, I think another way of looking at that might be that people who have certain psychological traits might be attracted to certain kinds of uh, professions, like the academy, or they might be attracted to certain kinds of institutions, um, or there might just be sort of ongoing. Sort of cultural transmission, right? Where there are are liberal or left leaning professors who then teach others uh, who think that way or teach them to think that way, and then they become professors. Um, but do you have any thoughts uh, on this idea that, well, you know, the reason that universities are on the left side of the spectrum is because that's what happens. You know, the more educated you become.
2: Yeah, I mean, yes, I do. I mean, I guess so. What do we know? I guess we a couple of things. One is. Going through university itself doesn't change your attitudes much. So there's been a lot of research on that. You know, university itself, especially what you learn, doesn't make much difference. However, um, what you learn in secondary school does seem to matter quite a bit for these attitudes. This is based on some recent survey work I've done with 18 to 20-year-olds. So I do think a lot of this is happening. The attitude shifting is happening in the the sort of K-12 space. Now, the other thing I'd say is... You know, if we look certain groups like freshmen who are female, you know, the H.E.R.I. surveys are showing that group has moved left by about something like 14 points since about 2004. So there has been a shift among certain groups. You know, younger women have moved to the left definitely over time. Uh, I would say there's also some evidence to suggest that people with advanced degrees, particularly PhDs, it seems like at least in Britain, PhDs who've stayed in academia are just way more left-wing on these cultural issues than PhDs who've who've gone off into industry and into private sector. There seems to be something about the campus environment that at least seems to keep you on the left in a way. Um, But then there's also, so I think there has been this cultural shift in the elite kind of modern culture that affects young people, that affects highly educated people who stay on campus. I also think, however, political discrimination and Uh, Hostile environment effects are playing a role. So for example, you know, roughly 40% of American academics that I surveyed wouldn't hire a known Trump supporter for a job in Britain, it's like a third wouldn't hire a known Brexit supporter for a job. Uh, And other surveys have found discrimination from 20 to 50% against right-leaning papers, grant applications. So there's no question that there is political discrimination. And also, when asked, is your department a hostile environment, you know, it's like 70% of, of conservatives are saying yes, 35% of centrists and only kind of 10% or 15 of left. So there's no question there's the environment is seen as hostile, that keeps people away, there's active discrimination that keeps people away. And then there is just this general evolution in what it needs to be on the left. Um, and so I think these new ideas are also playing a part.
1: Good, yeah. And so that does then lead into the question of, of how we address these issues. And as I was kind of saying earlier, there are people who will argue that, you know, restoring faculty governance uh, is a big step. And, you know, I think in some cases there's certainly uh, merit. Uh, you know, if you've been following at all what's been going on at Stanford over the last uh, four or five months, uh, at least a lot of the problems that have sort of made the headlines there seem to be problems that have stemmed from from bureaucrats, you know, from staff members uh, who are developing projects that then butt up against free expression or, or academic freedom on campus. But, you know, the kind of things that you're talking about, the data that you're looking at suggests that, you know, as you said earlier, relying on the faculty to uh, sort of step up and and change course on these issues might be foolish as well. Now, this is, uh, you know, this is controversial territory, (laughs) you know, certainly among the academic freedom community uh, here in the United States. uh, There's a lot of tension, especially with some of the bills that are being put into law in places like Florida, Texas. There's one uh, right now that's being considered in Ohio. And, uh, you know, there's differences between these bills and uh, there are some things in them that people might be willing to support. And then there's other things that a lot of people don't want to support. But as you kind of alluded to, I think there's just this more general sort of abstract debate about how do we protect academic freedom? And is it something that institutions should do on their own internally? Or do we need external actors um, and not just external actors like ACTA or FIRE or the the AFA to to sort of step in and and try to help out, but government as well, right? And and we end up in this you know, to some people seemingly paradoxical place where we would argue that we actually need government uh, to protect our free speech. Um, and you 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 certainly seem to fall on that side. So yeah. what's in your view? Why is it necessary that government become involved in protecting free expression on campus?
2: Yeah, I definitely do take that view. I, I'm I'm of the view that that almost you know nothing is really going to change systematically without external government intervention in this. You know, you can look at, for example, speech codes which have been unconstitutional, been in place since the late 1980s. I think Donald Downs and John Ellis both talk about that in their books. You know, you will occasionally get an enlightened president and a group of active faculty members and those that the stars will align and you might get a, a pro free academic freedom regime for a while which I think was true at University of Wisconsin for a little while and then it Collapsed. I, I think that's uh, you know it's just not going to happen. Why is that the case? I think even without the DEI bureaucrats, you know, in Britain and in Canada, you don't have as much money to spend on bureaucrats. It's not being driven by them. It's driven by essentially EDI committees, um, which are staffed by true believers that are faculty, with perhaps student input. Uh, it comes to a meeting. I've been in these faculty meetings. If somebody proposes decolonizing the curriculum and you oppose it. You know, only in the case of myself, I'm already going to be I'm already an outsider pariah who's kind of come out of the closet. But if you're not that, if you're just a regular faculty member who wants to get along and don't want to be radioactive, of course, you're just going to wave it through. So um there is just impossible, really, given the mores, the norms uh to actually oppose this stuff internally. So and I think having a high, you know, high sounding Chicago-style principal statements is also not going to do it unless those are proactively enforced. So yeah, I don't think universities can reform. Uh, And I think the the UK situation was one where, despite repeated warnings from government, and this has been a conservative government for sort of 14 years here, they kept mentioning about this whenever there were these outbreaks of no platforming and targeting of professors. Nothing, of course, changes because it can't change really, I don't think, internally. Um, And so now we've got legislation and Now that the legislation is in, lo and behold, things change. And and in fact, the only way the universities might reform internally is if they are scared of what's going to come at them from outside. They're scared of what DeSantis and those sorts of people are going to do. They want to get their own house in order just to avoid that fate. So, and But the bottom line is it would nothing would have changed without this challenge from the outside. Now we can get into sort of which measures are more useful. I should also say, by the way, there's two separate questions. One is academic freedom um, in terms of being free from institutional punishment. And the second is academic freedom in terms of being free from political discrimination and self-censorship. I think... Those are both separate issues. They contribute to a chilling climate of, of, you know, lack, loss of free speech. I'm afraid that the sort of political discrimination, self-censorship thing is probably the larger part of the equation and cannot be addressed even with your University of Chicago style policies. So, but I still think it's worth pursuing those institutional policies just to take the punishment angle out of the equation.
1: Yeah, it seems like the the discrimination uh, part of it, that might require more cultural change and a kind of embrace of, Intellectual and viewpoint diversity—not just even at least tolerated, but probably embraced—and um, that would require, you know, a large change in the way a lot of academics think, or at least the way they they vote on committees, hiring committees, and that sort of thing. But yeah, okay. So talking about the 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 situation in the UK, so this new law has recently been passed, right, an academic freedom bill, and now you're going to have an uh, or you have now an academic freedom czar, which I, I think you know, I've seen right. people joking about the idea of having a. Free- <laughs> (laughs) Freedom czar is a little odd, uh, perhaps, (laughs) uh, given what people think of when they hear the word czar uh, historically. Uh, But nevertheless, uh, there's an academic freedom czar. Uh, It sounds like people like yourself are happy with the person that they've chosen uh, as the inaugural holder of this office. But could you tell us a little bit about sort of what this person will do? What sort of power does this office have? and, And, you know, why you think this is a positive development that could have an impact or already is in your view?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, just very quickly, by the way, on, on protecting freedom, you know, if you look historically, there's a kind of Hobbesian type of liberalism where where the threats are private violence and private censorship. So I think we're in that type of a situation, which is why actually government putting pressure on institutions that are doing the private censoring is actually – liberty enhancing, whereas in other situations like in in Turkey or Russia, it's the government. So you need that traditional anti-government liberalism. So I just think we're in a different situation now, which is why government oddly is the best guarantor of of freedom in this instance. You know, and and I'd say, you know, the UK legislation, what it does is it empowers this office to issue uh, fines for universities, to issue guidance on best practice For example, in terms of documents that universities have to protect and to promote free speech, though they have a duty to do that. And faculty or students who feel that, that those, that their academic freedom rights have been violated can take up a civil case in the courts. Um, you could, you've also got a, so between these methods, what it is, is it offers a kind of proactive, almost real time ability to check abuses of um, of power by universities. And, and incidentally, no platforming is also coming under the rubric. So student unions, which didn't used to be covered by academic freedom duties, are have now been brought in under the umbrella of academic freedom. So what's happened very recently with a gender-critical feminist called Kathleen Stock at Oxford University, where the university was obligated to essentially tell the student union that it could not uh, essentially... You know, no platform, Kathleen Stock, or put pressure even to disaffiliate with the body that was giving stock a platform. I mean, that none of that would have happened, I think, without this legislation. So I think in terms of, you know, platforming, targeting at professors, this is really going to provide pretty rock-solid protection. Also, academics are going to be allowed to appeal to an o- ombudsman around their universities for redress. And so all of these kind of mechanisms allow, give the power really to the individual student or academic against their university. And I think that's a, that's very much a model which, I think could be followed in other jurisdictions. But the one thing I would say is it's not going to address viewpoint diversity. It's not going to address political discrimination either.
1: Okay, good. Yeah, and I know that some of the the bills that are, being introduced in the United States, do sort of go down this this road of having a sort of private course of action, you know, for redress uh, and that sort of thing under um, under them. Uh, it's interesting. So in the United States, obviously, as you know, there are there are public institutions and there are private institutions, and so especially at the public institutions, the First Amendment comes into play, uh, which does kind of go back then to that. Uh, that model of, you know, protecting the people against the government and, and the public university itself being included as a, as an extension, uh, of the government. Private universities, on the other hand, uh, there might be certain things you can do in terms of, you know, when they accept funding for certain kinds of things, the government could theoretically, uh, you know, attach maybe certain conditions to that. And certainly they, uh, most of them will have some kind of uh, academic freedom or free expression statement. And so you can try to, you know, seek redress under contract law and that sort of thing. Um, But, you know, in most ways, private universities and colleges are, are fortresses. You know, it seems like if you're going to get them to change, you know, it has to be, internal or through some kind of public PR campaign where they realize like, okay, we have to change because people are really, you know, upset. You know, I think maybe, uh, you know, I can't obviously get in their heads and understand what they're thinking, but in the case of Stanford, you know, they've taken some steps recently, uh, but I think, you know, they had a really bad four or five months uh, where they were in the news repeatedly for academic freedom problems. And they probably thought, you know, we need to, maybe they had, you know, thought for the sake of our our institution and our campus community, we need to do some things. I hope so. Uh, But they probably also were thinking, you know, that was really bad PR, you know, we could, we should probably respond in in some way.
2: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think the media is huge in this. And and a lot of positive stuff has occurred because of media scrutiny. Um, So that's going to have to continue to occur. But I mean, there are probably things that federal governments can do in terms of grant money, in terms of conditionality of student loan funding. I'm not sure of the constitutional ins and outs of it. Um, So that's one thing that can happen. But of course, trustees, uh, you know, trying to get trustees to put pressure on is important. I mean, I I would just mention, by the way, on public universities, so this problem of viewpoint diversity, and political discrimination, I think these are two areas that I I think the US legislation in the red states, in some of the red states, I mean, I think I disagree with some of it, but some of them do stipulate these universities have to set up these kind of civics centers that uh, promote Essentially a different point of view and give them tenure lines and a certain amount of funding, I think that's a positive development uh, because really if you if you take this self censorship and peer pressure political discrimination seriously, you do need to create institutions that are not majority dominated by the progressive outlook in order to allow for viewpoint diversity to exist um, so I think that's something that I think maybe the, the u k government you know, has been looking at, but I think the u s is kind of in the lead on that. The other thing is the University of North Carolina trustees adopting the Calvin Report. And that's a kind of political non discrimination, saying the university shouldn't take political positions. I mean, I do think kind of adding pol- politics and ideology to a kind of set of protected characteristics, if you're going to be doing equity and diversity. You should be taking account also of, you know, for example, discriminating openly as occurs now politically should be verboten. And that's something I think could be included in some of this legislation as well
1: right yeah and uh yeah getting rid of those diversity statements that's something they've also done um at, at unc uh yeah the the creation of these centers uh another thing i like about those is uh you know you're just adding something you're not taking right. something away right so there will be criticisms from from faculty on grounds of shared governance perhaps or something like that but uh you, can't, you know, maybe the academic freedom of the institution, but if it's the board of trustees, you know, that's you know, harder to argue uh, because it's the board of trustees doing it and they're part of the institution. But it, you know, it seems like you're you're adding people, you're adding a new center and you're not directly violating any other individual faculty members' academic freedom, right? You're not taking something away from them. So looking at some of those red state bills, so you mentioned a few things. What about removing uh, administrative uh, DEI offices? I mean, these seem to be, uh, you know, while certainly they're, you know, are reasons good reasons to be concerned about, you know, social justice issues related to things like race and gender. You know, the overall effect or the you know, the, the long term effect of these offices seems to be that, you know, they do tend to bump up against the academic freedom and free speech. And it seems like, you know, you could argue that removing those isn't really a violation of academic freedom because these are administrative offices. Uh, They're not academic programs. Um, Although I think there are concerns in these bills that the way they're written, there's a good possibility that, you know, some of the actions that are taken as a result of them could bleed into the classroom, you know, or, or other people or, or faculty members research.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the measures that are just targeting, DEI administrators. um, I think, I mean, I'm not a constitutional lawyer. I can't see what the problem would be on those. And I think those are generally positive. Where I would be opposed is, you know, for example, saying that you can't teach critical race theory, you know, or or divisive Mm -hmm. concepts. I mean, I think that's a violation of academic freedom. But I think simply uh, curtailing institutional autonomy, I don't see institutional autonomy as sacrosanct, for example, Mm -hmm. public institutions. Uh, public institutions should not be allowed, you know, universities should not be allowed to censor students in the name of institutional autonomy. So I don't have any problem with governments getting, you know, targeting DEI. Now you could perhaps say, well, another approach might be to say, which I kind of think might be interesting, is to say, okay, well, you can do your, you can do DEI, but anything you do on race and gender, you've got to match on politics and ideology. So if you want to monitor that, if you want to positively discriminate again, you know, in favor of of groups that are underrepresented, Um, anything you do on the one, you've got to do on the other, and and it's got to be equal. Uh, Now, I think universities would rather kind of collapse the DEI than actually try and do affirmative action for conservatives. But in Mm -hmm. any case, I just think it would be an interesting experiment to see if if some universities would say, well, actually, uh, yeah, we would rather continue with DEI, and we're going to bring in uh, a share of conservative academics to try and in- increase the share of conservative students to match whatever demographic we're trying to match with. Um, okay. It's Just another approach, uh, or you could try and you know get rid of the DEI. My worry is that you, I think, getting rid of the DEI bodies is as a positive step, but on the other hand, you haven't really addressed the uh viewpoint diversity problem. And and, and there's also the risk that this will continue to happen in a s- subterranean way. <laughs> okay. So yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Of but, uh, yeah. Okay. but I think you're um, right. That it definitely does bump up against academic freedom when you've got DEI as as the driver of policy.
1: Right. Okay. All right. Two two final questions uh for you. So the sure. The first is, you know, why does it matter? Like, in in your view, like, why does it matter that we uh, continue to work to uh, protect free expression and try to achieve um, better intellectual diversity at uh, universities and colleges?
2: Well, because I think universities are key to the entire elite high culture, which, uh, and, and if universities are able to kind of, make a stand for the importance of freedom of expression, even when it's in tension with um, what I would call cultural socialism, this idea of social justice, if they are able to sort of say, well, you can do social justice, but it's got to be subordinated to the imperative of freedom of expression, that could really have a very important knock-on effects on the broader culture and direction of society. Because if we lose this battle, ultimately, and these values are spilling off campus into other organizations, and eventually freedom of speech just falls down the hierarchy as, as something that can be more or less thrown under the bus when it collides with you know anyone's emotional safety, quote unquote, then it's going to be a very different society from the one that's existed for quite some time. So I, I think it's kind of a civilizational imperative, as well as, of course, all the other things such as you know, pursuit of truth uh, in research and and reason and all of these enlightenment traditions as well. So, yeah, I just think it's an extremely important endeavor.
1: Okay, great. Now, as far as what the future looks like, as we've talked about, you know, it seems like, you know, your prediction would be white dower, at least for the, the next generation. I don't know if you've sort of gamed this out multiple generations for now. I know you've done work on, you know, how the religious will inherit the earth and right. that sort of thing. But let me ask you this as a way of closing. If, if you were to give your sort of most optimistic account of why we should continue to push to try and protect free expression and intellectual diversity on campuses, and that we could have a positive Impact, you know, what would the argument be from from your perspective that this could actually work out well in the end?
2: Well, I think that you could begin perhaps to change the socialization of young people, particularly insofar as university influences, teacher training in schools influences media and other parts of the meaning making apparatus of society. So what what really needs to ultimately happen is for those classical liberal values to take hold in younger generations. Now it is worth saying that there's a big gender split amongst young people that is much larger than in older generations. And so it's really younger females where we see a lot of the opposition, much stronger opposition. Now, how that's going to play out in the future is, is unclear. But I just generally think the aim really has to be to change culture. Now, you can look at something like Cass Sunstein talks about seatbelt and smoking laws. You know, you start out with something that's legal and political, and it eventually becomes a norm. It's not impossible to think that if the legal and political battles are won on free speech, then that might, like anti-smoking or seatbelt use, bed down as a norm. And in fact, there have been studies as well that have shown that students in school who are taught about the First Amendment, taught about the law, are more supportive of of free speech. Again, that's something that has to happen in the curriculum. But all of these things are to some degree downstream of the university. So I think, yeah, there's there's all to play for. And, you know, I do think that the positive scenario is that we're able to get these new norms bedded in and change, you know, turn the ship around, I guess, and conserve those free speech values. So that's the hope.
1: Okay, great. Well, let's hope that something like that <laughs> is the future we end up seeing. Uh, Eric, thanks for joining us on Higher Ed Now today. Thanks,
2: Steve. Thanks. It's been a pleasure.
0: Higher Ed Now is a production of the American Council of Trustees and Alumni in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work in the pivotal issues of higher education, visit goacta.org, or you can email us at info at goacta.org. If you enjoy Higher Ed Now, you can subscribe and leave us a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. I'm